we're going to take eight weeks in September and October to think about the life of a disciple. And you know, the, the, the terminology that churches typically use and Christians typically use is, is the language of Christians to talk about somebody that follows Jesus. And the word Christian actually doesn't show up much in the Bible at all in the New Testament. Uh, the, the word you typically get for someone who follows Jesus is a disciple, and that starts in the Gospels. And so when we say a disciple's life, we're not talking about a different kind of Christian. We're talking about a normal Jesus follower. And so we're going to, um, Jake started this last week. This is going to be the second one in an eight-week series, September and October, to look at what, what are, what's kind of the normal life of a normal disciple, you know, according to the Gospels, we're really going to be mostly in the Gospel of Mark. What, what looks like the meat and potatoes of a disciple's life? So this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. You know, I like to mention this from time to time. I, I think state mottos are interesting. Hope you know the South Carolina one. You know, while I breathe, I hope. Of course, they're in Latin, you know, back when people knew Latin. Uh, I, you may or may not have seen the one north of us, North Carolina. And I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly. Uh, correctly. Esse, quam videri. Esse, or esse, quam videri. To be rather than to seem. It's a great motto. To be rather than to seem. To be, to be the real deal, don't just look like the real deal. And I thought about that going to this text because we're going to get into something that is just, this is not just a, a thing about being a follower of Jesus, but it's so central, it's so core, that really we could say that this, this gives us something of a diagnostic for answering this question. How, how do I know that I am being a disciple and I don't just seem to be a disciple? And I don't know if you've ever wondered that about yourself. Now, I'm not assuming that everybody in here professes to be a disciple of Jesus. And if that's you, that, that's thrilling to us that you would be here and be thinking through these things and engaging the Scriptures. But if you are here and you do profess to know Jesus, I mean, I, I, I suspect at some point, you might not have worded it this way, but you've wondered, have I, have I tricked myself that I'm the real thing? Or am I the real thing? Well, let's look at this. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, now, for context, that's the day after what we call the triumphal entry. This is the last week of Jesus' life on earth, at least prior to the crucifixion. So this would be the day after what we call Palm Sunday. On the following day, When they came from Bethany, he, that's Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then in verse 20, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, 
Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, even as Jonathan just prayed about the areas affected by Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, in in many ways when we are up against great loss or tragedy or confusion, and even when it's just in our own individual lives, we, we don't know what to pray. We don't know how to live out belief. And so we of all people need help this morning. We of all people need you to really use your word and to to feed us, to minister to us, to open our eyes and to pour into us. So we pray that you would. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2011, a book came out that made a pretty big splash. It was a book by Michael Lewis called The Big Short. And... uh, in fact, the, the full title is in The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine. And you may have seen the film adaptation of this a few years ago. But what he writes about is the events leading up to what really culminated around 2008, and it's where the American economy and huge chunks of the global economy almost came unhinged. And Now, there's people in this room that could explain this way more capably than I could, but I'm just going to try to dip my toe in the water. What a lot of this had to do with was an investment called a mortgage-backed security, which I will not try to explain in depth right now. But uh, the, 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 the sort of layman's version of it was that this was, it was a financial device. It was an, an investment product that meant instead of like investing in a bundle of companies, you're investing in a bundle of mortgages, and it, was, it worked well when there were good, healthy mortgages to invest in, but, but the, the appetite of this global, what somebody called the global pool of money, was so voracious that it wanted more product, more product, which meant you had to find more and more mortgages to bundle as these securities, which means you got worse and worse quality mortgage, which meant that after a while these investment products were toxic. And one of the things that Michael Lewis writes about, or if you've seen the movie, you see this, is that overwhelmingly, across the board, these things are selling like hotcakes. And they're not just selling like hotcakes in the United States. They're selling like hotcakes all over the place. But there were a few people that did the homework. And they dug into it, and they really started looking at the numbers, and even like going and seeing the places where these, you know, where these mortgages are taking place and realize we've got a huge problem. And, uh, and I know, especially in the movie, you, you'll get kind of moments where people that are convinced this is not going to end well. In fact, this is so big and this is so bad, it could take down the American economy. Every once in a while, they sort of have to turn to each other and go, that's right, isn't it? We're right. Because, like, the numbers say, this can't work, right? And that person or that little group of people have to go, right. Now, here's the thing. When they're doing that, 
almost everything that they can see is shouting a different message. People are buying these things. People are selling these things. People are making boo-coodles of money off these things. Now, they could see one thing. They could see the numbers. They could see the data and say, this can't work. But they were having to, in a sense, not believe what they were overwhelmingly seeing around them and go with things that were, for the most part, unseen around the world. To me, in some ways, that's a picture of the church. And and what I mean by that is this. um, The Bible doesn't give a lot of definitions of its own terms. You know, the Bible's not written like a textbook. It doesn't define every term. But there's one term that the Bible actually defines, you know, like a dictionary. It defines the word faith. This is actually on the front of your bulletin. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And be sure to get this part. It's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance. Like, I'm sure of these things that I hope for. It's not pie in the sky. I'm sure of them. And I'm convicted about the reality of things that I can't see. And part of what God's people, ideally, ideally, part of what God's people are doing when we come together like we're doing this morning is we're saying these things that we can't see These things that we can't like prove in the lab or prove with a spreadsheet. It's true, right? Because almost everything we're seeing screams another message. And you think about that. Almost everything around you is screaming. The main thing you're here to do is like to have a designer life. So like be the best you you can be. Be the healthiest you you can be. Physically and emotionally and uh, financially and vocationally. Optimize everything you can. Just have the best version of your life. Be the best version of you that you can possibly be. And you've got this ancient book saying, yeah, we are surrounded by God's good gifts. But we're dying. We're moving toward death. And we're moving toward death with this thing in us that we cannot fix. We can't fix it with our programs or our goals or our life management or with a life coach or with optimizing everything or better nutrition. And it's unseen. And we either believe that God can and will take care of it the way he says he will or not. And that finally, when we die or the Lord Jesus comes back, whom we've never seen. The main character of everything that we talk about, we've never seen. That when he comes back and we stand before the living God, we either have what he says we have because we believed him or not. I mean, don't, don't you feel the need to like get back together, whether it's community group or worship or friends over coffee or whatever... When everything that's around us is screaming another message that we have to get across from one another and go, okay, these things are true, right? It's true, isn't it? That's us wrestling with faith. 
And I, I just think words fall short to convey how big a deal faith is in the Scriptures. I mean, faith is not an aspect of a disciple's life. It is paramount. It's like how you know, do I seem to be a disciple or am I a disciple? It's a question of, do I have faith or not? So, you know, I think you've picked up on this by now. We're going to look at faith. And uh, let's look at this from this passage. A few things. First off, faith is primary. Really kind of said that already. Faith is primary. Faith is fruitful. Faith is uneven. All right? Faith is primary. Faith is fruitful. Faith is uneven. First off, faith is primary. I might refer to another gospel or two, but we're mostly going to be in the gospel of Mark. Way before you get to this passage, if you were just reading the gospel of Mark for the first time, in chapter 1, you see John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. That was his big job, prepare the way for the Messiah. And then around verse 14, 15, the Messiah sort of goes public and starts speaking and teaching and and walking around and doing his thing. It's Jesus. When Jesus goes public, what does Mark record him saying? And this is where you have to look at it kind of through Jewish eyes instead of through Gentile eyes or American eyes. Because the Messiah that the Jews were anticipating. You might have expected that how he would begin his ministry would be to say, repent and what? Repent and obey the law. That would have made total sense. Repent and keep the Torah. Repent and keep the laws and statutes of Moses. The whole life of Judaism was built around that. And you look in verse 14 and 15 in the first chapter of Mark. This is in italics there under our passage. And it says, Now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and what? Believe. When the Messiah goes public, what's the big thing he wants you to do? to do. Repent, that means turn to God, don't turn away from Him. Turn to Him and do what? Believe Him. Believe Him. Look at the passage under that. Now this is from the Gospel of John, but this is a really great moment. Jesus is talking about that there are these these works that God wants His people to do. Now, if you have somebody that you're thinking, that that might be the Messiah. I'm not sure, but I think that man right there is the Messiah. And you've got him him there where you can ask him a question. And he's talking about there are works that God wants us to do. What question would you want to ask? What are they? Like, what's the big thing that God wants me to do? And we have a record of that conversation. John 6, 28. This is the crowd. Then they said to him, what must we do? To be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Now we could give example after example after example of how this plays out in the Bible. Think about it this way. In the Gospel of Mark, you don't really find Jesus coming up to people and saying, You obey the Ten Commandments so well. 
You are so accomplished at obeying the law of God. But what you do find in the Gospel of Mark is somebody will believe him. And they'll act on it. Like somebody will believe he's so powerful. I don't even know how it works. But if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Like in Mark, there's an account of this woman. She sneaks up behind him. Doctors can't heal her. She sneaks up behind him and touches him. And she's healed. And then he says, who, who did that? And they find her and she feels squirrely about it. The New Testament doesn't use the word squirrely, but I think you know what I'm talking about. She feels squirrely about it. And says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He commends people for having faith. Now, it's not an overstatement to say, what is the main thing a disciple is supposed to do? The main thing a disciple is supposed to do is believe. Okay, the way we really do life, what do you think is the main thing we think we're supposed to do? You know, life is hard, and, 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 and life throws a lot at you. When life is throwing stuff at you, and it's tough, or it's hard, or it's confusing, or it's painful, in that moment, what do we feel like is the main thing to do? And you know what? For me, a real window in answering this question has been teaching women's Bible study. Uh, I, I love getting to teach the first few weeks of women's Bible study. And I've noticed over the years, and this has been helpful to me, is that it almost doesn't matter what the, what the Bible passage is or the topic is. When we get into application, fleshing stuff out, the application that comes up over and over and over is control. That when life is painful or it's confusing and I don't know what to do, the, the primary thing that I feel like I'm supposed to do is control. Control the circumstances. Get those circumstances to do what they're supposed to do. Or control me. I feel out of control, or I'm acting out of control, so I'm going to control me. So the first thing I've got to do is I've got to control me. The first thing a disciple is to do is believe. I mean, like right now, can you feel how counterintuitive that is? I want us to. It's primary. And here's the second thing. Faith is fruitful. Uh... Now, you can tell there's, there's something in between these two passages. I just wanted you to hear this part about the fig tree. But look in verses 13 and 14. It says, Jesus is hungry. And by the way, that's a nice biblical little evidence that he had real humanity, not pretend humanity. He could get tired and he could get hungry and he could bleed and all that. Verses 13 and 14. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then you get the next passage and it says that's exactly what happened. In fact, it withered from the roots up. Not just part. The tree just died completely. What happens in between this passage? Because, you know, if if you didn't know better, it would seem like, Man, Jesus is in a bad mood. Killing trees and whatnot because he's hungry. I get in a bad mood when I'm hungry, but I'm not killing trees. Jesus very much has his prophet 
hat on. You know, and this is something that we celebrate in the church, that Jesus is, we say, prophet and priest and king. And in, in the Old Testament, not just once, but several times, you'll find a prophet who they'll, they'll wear something or they'll bury something or they'll do something visual and observable. And it's like, it's like a visual parable. The way Jesus, as the great prophet, capital P, the way he interacts with this tree in front of the disciples, he's doing it as a prophet. He has his prophet hat on. What happens in between those two passages about the tree? This is right after the triumphal entry. It's when Jesus went into the temple and he found all the money changers and the people selling animals in the temple. And, and this is actually significant, this detail, is that they didn't just set up generically in the temple. Because this is Passover week. Lots of people coming into Jerusalem. Lots of people with money coming into Jerusalem. And two things they had to do in Passover week, if you were a devout Jew, is you had to pay your, uh, your temple tax. Kind of your temple fee. And there's a certain kind of currency that you had to use to do that. Well, you could change money to do that from your local currency into the proper currency in Jerusalem. And so they set up in the court of the Gentiles. See, if you're a Gentile and you believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're called a God-fearer. But if you had not been circumcised, you're still a Gentile. But if you really believed in this one true God and you wanted to go to the temple and pray, which, by the way, it was built for that to be okay. King Solomon prayed that when he dedicated the first temple that non-Jews who come to believe in the one true God could come there and it could be a house of prayer for them. But they couldn't go into the holier parts of the temple. The only place that Gentiles could go on the temple campus to pray was the court of the Gentiles. So when the money changers were thinking about where can we set up where we're not getting in the way of temple activities, but you know what's an area that we can sort of fudge on? They set up in the space where the Gentiles were allowed to pray. And, of course, you also needed a Passover lamb, so there's animals, and for other sacrifices. You know, these are like temple-approved animals for sacrifices, and, and they were being sold in the court of the Gentiles. And so here's what you've got. You've got Jesus, and he comes into the temple during Passover week, and, man, it is a beehive of activity. There are people coming and going, and there are people getting animals for sacrifices, and they're paying their temple tax. But Jesus is looking around, and he's seeing this is a space that is supposed to be what? And he quotes from the prophets. This space is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, all Gentiles who want to come should be able to come here. But what have you turned it into? den of robbers, a place of commerce. In other words, what is Jesus saying? There's lots of activity here. No fruit. And what would the fruit be? Prayer. Praying to the unseen God with open hands in a posture of dependence, talking to him and adoring him and asking him for what we need that we can't do for ourselves. That that would be the fruit. The bookends of that temple cleansing. You know, and 
I think you know the story that Jesus drives out the money changers. He drives out the animals. Doesn't apologize for doing so. But on the way to go do that, he goes, he goes to a tree. And the tree looks healthy. But he goes to a tree that looks <clears throat> healthy and green and leafy. But it doesn't have fruit on it. And like a prophet, he says, looks healthy, no fruit. Don't ever bear fruit again. Temple cleansing comes back to it, and now it looks like what it is, a fruitless tree. What is Jesus saying? You know, you can look active, doing religious stuff, going to religious meetings, even in some ways kind of jumping through what we think are hoops that God wants us to jump through, and there's no fruit there. And why is there no fruit there? It's a faith problem. Maybe the great act or fruit of faith is prayer. When Peter says, wow, look at that, the, the, the tree actually withered, uh, what does Jesus say? I know. I've never done that trick before. He says, first off, have faith in God. And then what does he say? And before I read this, I, let me, I'm going to verbalize something that many of you already know. Uh, as, a, as somebody that teaches and preaches, I always feel like I have to like nuance things. Nuance and qualify and subclauses and asterisks and contrast that with how Jesus talks about praying with faith. Verse 23. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. And by the way, the mountain he's speaking about might be the temple mount, not a mountain range. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes, has faith that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And we're waiting for him to qualify that. And he doesn't. And it seems like when he talks about prayer, he never does. He'll just say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But Jesus, you need to tell them that if you know, like they ask for something that's not God's will, he's not going to do He doesn't qualify like that. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we did a study in uh, just a few chapters of the Gospel of John. It's, it's the chapters that li- that's leading up to his arrest that night, what we call Maundy Thursday, the night before he's crucified. And repeatedly in those chapters, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus will just say, you know what, whatever you ask the Father in my name, it will be given to you. No qualifications. No asterisk. Do you feel stretched by that? Uh, Let let me say it the way Jesus said it. When we pray in faith, God acts. Two weeks ago, speaking of community group, in our community group, one of of our folks shared a prayer request and said, "Um, I've, I've developed a relationship with this. I'm being very vague here. I've developed a relationship with this person and have been investing in her and have really started 
to talk about the gospel and have shared the gospel with her, would you pray that she believes? And so we prayed that night. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. We do that kind of thing on a fairly regular basis. But if I were honest, sometimes I'm doing that on autopilot because I know I'm supposed to. But then we got an email the next day, and this person in our community group who had shared that said, I met with her today, and she told me that last night this thing sort of washed over me. Like I could feel myself being liberated. What was that? And it's when we were praying. About three weeks ago, I went to go see a friend of mine who uh, lives down in Georgia, and we uh, were taking a big walk talk. We were walking around his hometown and talking. And, and uh, as we were walking, something that happened. That this, is, this is not a frequent occurrence for me. It may be a frequent occurrence for you. But, like, we both had an aha. I don't have tons of ahas every day. You know, that kind of feeling where you go, ah, whoa. You know, like, I just connected some dots I've never connected before. Well, I was walking, and I had one. And then we walked about another half mile, and then he had one. And he said, you know what? I prayed this morning before we got together that if God wanted us to see something in particular that we hadn't seen before, that we would see it during our time together. And he did it. I needed to hear some stories like that or see some things happen like that in my life. Often, God's answer to our prayers is wait. But Jesus says... He always answers. Sometimes not the way we think, but sometimes with the very thing that you ask for. But you must believe. Well, that leads to the last thing. And, uh, and I hope this will be an encouragement to you. Is that Okay, faith is primary. Faith, it, it bears fruit, especially believing prayer. But our faith is uneven. I'm going to be brief here. Look back at verse uh, 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Does anything strike you as odd about the exclamation points? How many miracles has Peter witnessed? I mean, at the very beginning of their relationship, early in their friendship, Peter saw Jesus stand up in a boat and rebuke a weather system. And it responded to him. And it terrified them. And he turned to them and said, have you still no faith? That was like in the beginning of their friendship. And he's seen Jesus raise people from the dead, feed thousands of people with just sort of a little bit of food, twice, and on and on and on. And, and, and what is Peter saying? Almost, I can't believe that. That's how we sound in Scripture. And here's one that doesn't get a lot of, a lot of press, I think, because we're embarrassed by it, is that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is raised from the dead, the risen Jesus Christ, before he ascends into heaven, he appears to the disciples in Galilee. And Matthew records, thank you, Matthew, for telling the truth. He says that they worshipped him, but some doubted. What? 
You saw him crucified and you're standing before the risen Jesus and you're still struggling with faith, Matthew says. Somewhere. Um, Let me give you a true or false test. This is a a true or false one-question theology test. And our officer candidates better get this one right. True, and some of you are about to, to think that I'm, I've gone heretical when I ask this question, but, but hang with me. True or false, we are saved by our faith. True or false, we are saved by our faith. False. We ask, we ask this question of people trying to be ordained when we check them out at Presbytery because we want to make sure they're clear on this. No one is saved by his or her faith. You're saved by Jesus through faith. Our faith, the quality, the quantity, has never been our Savior. A disciple's faith is never that disciple's Savior. Let me read you this just for your encouragement, and then I'm done. This is from a an old Scottish book, and I'm just going to read this and I'll be done. But he's talking about, what, what would you do if you saw an Israelite and he's, uh, he, he's going to give his sacrifice at the, at the tabernacle and part of the sacrifice is you put your hand on the victim, you know, the sacrificial victim, confess your sins and then it's sacrificed. What would you do if you saw an Israelite and he went and did that the way God said to do it and he's walking home and he looks anxious? He's worried about, I don't know if I felt right. I don't know if I put my hand in the right place. So here's here's what this this pastor writes. What should we have said to the Israelite who on bringing his lamb to the tabernacle should puzzle himself with questions as to the right mode of laying his hands on the head of the victim? And who should refuse to take any comfort from the sacrifice because he was not sure whether he did it right, on the proper place, in the right direction, with adequate pressure, or in the best attitude? Should we not have told him that his own actions concerning the lamb were not the lamb? And yet that he was speaking as if they were. Should we not have told him that the lamb was everything? His touch is nothing as to virtue or merit or recommendation. Should we not have told him to be of good cheer? Not because he had laid his hands on the victim in the most approved fashion. But because they had touched that victim. And get this. The quality or quantity of faith is not the main question for the sinner. That which he needs to know is that Jesus died and was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. This knowledge is life everlasting. If you're a believer, do you believe the way you should? No. Do I believe the way I should? No. Did you know that Jesus even died for that? Does that feel like good news? The thing that God requires, He gives to us. The thing He gives to His people is faith in His Son who even cleanses and redeems the problems with our faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, on the one hand, we pray right now, having heard what we've heard, that We won't look to our faith to be our Savior, that we would look to you, that we would look to Jesus.
to save us. And we also pray that we will act on faith. We pray that it would bear fruit in the form of prayer. That we would pray big things for Greenville. Big things for our world. That we would pray big things for downtown. And for our own lives and our own change. Lord, for the person here who never has had faith or doesn't know, we pray that you would give him or her faith so that they know. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.